I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker and New Yorker staff writer Susan Glasser, husband and wife, about their new book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017-2021 which came out September 20, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on September 27, 2022. Enjoy. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our speakers. Normally, my introductions are rather short. This is going to be a little bit of an exception because it's the subject. I realize there's many people in this room who voted for Trump. I realize there's probably many, many in this room who are really tired of Trump bashing, as the term is used, and all I can, and, and who like to shy away from politics because it is so divisive. And whenever somebody would say that to me, I said, this isn't about politics, this is about history. This is about facts. And some people who don't know Peter and Susan will say, yeah, but everybody's got their spin. I say, you know what? Let me tell you why I believe so strongly in Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. It's because my great hero in history and politics is James Baker. And about eight or nine years ago, James Baker, going strong, smart, active, wanted to hopefully find a journalist or a historian of high integrity, high writing skill to write his biography. And Peter and Susan decided that was something they wanted to do. Many of you have read The Man Who Ran Washington, which came out two years ago, got all kinds of great reviews, New York Times notable books, so on and so forth. What you may not know is James Baker turned over every document he ever had, He introduced them to everybody in his network. He gave them no restrictions at all. He had no editorial control at all. Why? Because he trusted them. He knew he could trust their judgment to give it a straight shot. And he came out, or they came out with such a fantastic product. So as far as I'm concerned, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser have the James Baker seal of integrity (laughs) approval. And so if you got a problem with that, you and I need to talk after this program. (laughs) But as you know, Susan is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Peter is the White House correspondent for The New York Times. They have one of the great marriages in that they are able to write books together, which uh, is an incredible challenge. But anyway, this book just came out. Oops. This book just came out last week. Uh, I've learned that night before last, Uh, President Bush was talking about it. Last night, he's talking about it. I think this book, when people read it, will be to Trump what all the president's men was to Nixon. And that they are, Peter and Susan, are of that caliber above Woodward and Bernstein. So please welcome Susan Glasser and Peter Baker. So let's talk about the book. Uh, Many years ago, Harry Truman said, there's Harlan, we're so glad you're here. Mm-hmm. Harlan Crow, meet Susan and Peter. How are you? Nice to see you. Uh, many years ago, Harry Truman said, 
It takes 50 years for the dust to settle before you can really evaluate a president. Well, this book has come out less than two years after Trump left the White House. So given that uh, set of facts, how confident are you about the conclusions? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thank you so much, Thomas, for having us, for sponsoring this wonderful morning. I love to see so many people so early in the morning. Uh, and we're delighted to be here in person. As, as he mentioned, obviously, we had a book just two years ago that we expected to come to Texas for and do a lot of book work, but we couldn't come for, for obvious reasons. So being here in person is a great treat for us. And we're delighted to be with Talmud. We're delighted to be with all of you guys today. So thank you. Um, we, are just, we just came out last week, so this is all new for us. Uh, we haven't done uh, much talking yet about this book, but I think the point you, ask, the point you make is a good one. We don't know how a president's going to look in history right away. It is too early in that sense. President Bush would always say that. Uh, when I was writing a book, Bush about, a book about President Bush, he said, ah, oh, it's too early, you know. If you're, we're still debating the first George, they're going to be debating me for a long time. He met Washington. Um, but what we wanted to do was at least take a first cut at it. While memories were fresh, while people were still available to talk, while they were, in fact, eager in some ways to talk. Now, a lot of people said, well, why did you hold back? And did you hold back anything? No, this is all reporting we did after he left office because we worked out every day over four years when he was in office to report everything we could. But we thought it was important to go back and try to learn what we didn't know at the time. And what we discovered in 300 interviews and lots of documents and text messages and so forth that we obtained is a bigger, richer, fuller story, I think, than people knew at the time. And, and we, we, we learned things about stories we thought we already knew, and we learned stories we never heard of in the process. And we think it tells a larger tale. And the larger tale in this case is about how January 6th was no outlier. It was, in fact, the inexorable culmination, really, of four years of a war on institutions in Washington. Mm -hmm. And we can talk more about that. But we thought that was an important subject, in part because it's not just history. It may also be prologue. You know, we're not done with this story yet entirely. This book covers four years. But you see on the title, on the, on the cover, it has dates. Uh, it may not be the last book uh, on this subject, and we'll see what happens. Susan, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question. Let's say it's 48 years from now. <laughs> uh, how do you think President Trump is going to be remembered in history? Well, first of all, Talmadge, thank you. As Peter said, it's an incredibly generous introduction, and no, Talmadge is not a relative, so we did not, you know. Uh, Seriously, it's very, very, very kind of you. Uh, and I do think, we can talk about this, there is an interesting commonality in theme between the Jim Baker book and this book because it is fundamentally, both books are stories about Washington uh, and our institutions and when they work and when they don't work uh, and why that is. Uh, 48 years from now, I hope that I'm not the one writing another book uh, about Trump. Uh, although I'm pretty, I would be willing to bet you that there will be many books about Trump, uh, just as we are still seeing every year new books about uh, Nixon and Watergate. Uh, this is going to be one of the enduring subjects for students of American history, for students of Washington. Uh, why? Because of the disruption uh, that Trump has shown uh, and because he represents in some very significant ways breaks with our precedent and tradition of presidents. And I'm not talking about, I mean, this is breaks with 
Democratic and Republican presidents. And I think that's one of the reasons you asked, why do we do this? I, I think for Peter and I, who both spent most of the last several decades covering Washington, we felt that that was a perspective that we could bring particularly to the story of the Trump presidency. What is truly an outlier? Where is he actually, you know, breaking China? Where is he within the tradition? Uh, actually, of American politics. And there are some areas, I would say, where he is, uh, you know, in the tradition of a very partisan president, but nonetheless uh, within the lines. But then there are some areas where he's really not. And I think that's where history is going to be very likely to be harshest. Uh, the bottom line, as I know everyone here knows, is that we've never had a president in the entire history of this country who has refused to accept the results of an election and, in fact, has sought to overturn it. Uh, and that is just something that essentially breaks the fundamental social contract that is that is explicit in the U.S. Constitution. It is just not something. It, this has nothing to do with ideology, nothing to do with anything like that. So that's his place in history. When you get a paragraph, uh, Barack Obama used to, I think, talk about that, right? Like, you know, you only get your paragraph. What can you do uh, to influence what it says? Mm -hmm. uh, well, we know a lot of what uh, Barack Obama's paragraph will be, but I think we do know, we don't know all the details, how it's filled in, because we don't know how the story ends. And that's to Peter's point. Normally, there's always a book like this about a presidency, right? You know, a first crack at an authoritative four-year history. Lou Cannon did a, a fantastic job of that with Reagan. For example, our colleague John Harris did that with Bill Clinton. Uh, the difference is that this, first of all, we had about a year less <laughs> to do this book than you might have taken. Why? Because this is a live-action story. And that is another way that history will record Donald Trump as fundamentally different uh, than his predecessors, we've only had one president in American history, Grover Cleveland, uh, who left office and then successfully came back to it. it it's a real outlier that we should be still living uh, with a president who was not only rejected from office, but very decisively, usually parties move on very quickly from losing presidential candidates. Uh, we all know that. Uh, Donald Trump managed to lose the White House, the Senate and the House in just four years. He's the first president to do that since Herbert Hoover. And yet the Republican Party has not rejected Donald Trump in the way that it would have rejected anyone else with that record. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure when you're at cocktail parties or dinners or wherever you may go, you hear people say, well, I don't like Donald Trump as a person, but I certainly like many of his policies. Conservative federal judges, trying to secure the border, lower taxes, insisting that other countries pay their fair share of international obligations. When people say that to you, knowing what you know from your research, 300 interviews, what's your response? Well, that's fine. I mean, you know, it's totally fine to, to, to be for policies and, and, that's, and we're not here to tell you how to think about him or how to judge him. Our job with this book is to provide an account of what happened. People can make their own judgments. I think that those policies are important, and I think that people made decisions to vote one way or the other based on those policies. But I think there are also some issues with him that go beyond policy. They go beyond, you know, to whether taxes should be here or here, or health care should be this or that, or, or how much we should spend on the Pentagon. The issues that he raised are more fundamental in some ways to our system. Do we want to have a system where the Justice Department is uh, 
political instrument of the president as opposed to a apolitical, you know, deliverer of, of, of justice? Do we want the military to be uh, used to in a political way? And what we found time and time again with these 300 interviews we did, these were all people, by the way, almost all, who worked for him. These are not liberal Democrats. These are Republicans or at least career people who work for him. And they were concerned again and again that he was trying to bend these institutions out of the traditions that we had established, at least in the post-Watergate era. An example would be the military. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, four-star general, West Point uh, graduate. Uh, sorry, no, he's Princeton, sorry. Uh, uh, despite the fact he went to Princeton, an awfully uh, <laughs> good officer. And he was picked by Trump as the, ch the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He's not, he wasn't uh, picked by his predecessor, he was picked by Trump. He grew so alarmed by what he saw, particularly after the Lafayette Square clearing and, and, and photo op, that he wrote a blistering letter of resignation that we published for the first time in this book, never been published before, that I've never seen anybody ever write to a president. And it said in his words, these are his words, that, that you, Mr. President, he said, you are doing grave and irreparable harm to the country. He said, I cannot serve for you anymore because I don't think you believe in the things that we fought in one World War II for, the values that America stands for. I don't, he says, you're ruining the international order. This is an extraordinary letter. You do not see letters like this in public, in, in, in public life very often in the, in the government. He didn't send it. Put in a drawer. Why did he put it in a drawer? He decided, as so many people did in the last four years, that he could do more good on the inside than the outside, in his view. He told his staff, he says, I'm going to stay and fight. By fight, he didn't mean he was going to disobey lawful orders. He is an officer. He salutes when he's told to, to do something. But he was concerned about illegal orders or the politicization of the military. And so he stayed to fight because he was worried about exactly what would happen which is that after the election, there might be an effort to hold on to power <clears throat> despite the will of the voters. He called it a Reichstag moment, uh, just like Hitler used the burning of the, of the Reichstag to justify uh, you know, the, 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 the sublimation of, of, of Germany in that time. Now, I always think the Nazi comparisons are, are a little fraught and we shouldn't make them. But what's interesting is, and also in our book, we discovered that it was, tr it was Trump himself who made those uh, uh, comparisons. He wanted his generals, like Milley, to be personally loyal to him, not to the country, but to him. He says one time to John Kelly, retired four-star Marine general, his second White House chief of staff, he says, why aren't you guys more like the German generals? He says, what are you talking about? The German generals in World War II. He said, the Hitler generals? Yes, why aren't you more like them? Why aren't you more loyal? He said, we, John Kelly said, well, you know, they did try to kill Hitler three times, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which, no, he didn't know. Um, but that was, the, that was the, the mentality, and that's what disturbed John Kelly, American patriot, so much. That's what disturbed Mark Milley, American patriot, so much. And so there's a lot of that in this book, I think, about where it goes beyond policy, beyond legitimate and totally uh, rational conversations about taxes and health care and military spending and foreign policy in China and all those things. Susan, to your point of a minute ago, as you're working on the book, you're not only trying to understand Trump, but you're trying to understand why do people still want to support him? He lost the presidency, lost the Senate, lost the House, and yet he still has somewhere between 33 and 40 percent of the country behind him. Is it merely a cult of personality that people are so, there's something about this chemistry between his personality and his supporters that it isn't about issues, it isn't about anything, it's, it's, it's a personality cult. You know, I, I think that that's a fair description 
I really do, Talmadge. And, you know, again, look, this is a book about Trump in the White House, right? It's a history fundamentally of the president and his advisors and the story that played out there, right? It's not, there have been some very good books uh, about the politics, about what's happening around the country that would lead to a situation where so many Americans would support someone like this. Uh, but it does go to this question of what what is the contract? What is the deal? How did so many people even within Washington agree to serve a man that they were against? And that has been an extraordinary thing to watch. For Peter and I, we spent most of our career, uh, aside from time that we spent uh, as foreign correspondents in Russia covering Vladimir Putin, we spent most of our time in Washington. And I'll tell you, the transformation, uh, what Jared Kushner once told Peter in an interview was the hostile takeover of the Republican Party in Washington by Trump and his advisors is, is really something remarkable. Uh, you had, of course, 17 candidates ran against him uh, in 2016. The entire infrastructure of the Republican Party, elected officials were against Donald Trump. People like Lindsey Graham called him a kook. Uh, you know, your own senator, you know what Ted Cruz said about uh, Donald Trump back in 2016. Here it is, like, imagine that you, you know, fell asleep and you woke up five years later and there was Ted Cruz <laughs> slavishly, uh, you know, adoring Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the same guy. You know, he doesn't change. This is a, a man in his late 70s with very particular habits, right? He's not changing. Uh, you know, my friends and I used to joke, it's like the bad boyfriend theory, right? Like he's not, you know, going to change, uh, give up on that. Uh, and yet. <laughs> I don't think she's speaking from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> At least I hope not. <laughs> well, you know, when you find a good one, you know. Um, the bottom line is, of course, Donald Trump is the same guy that he was in 2015 and 2016. What's different is the infrastructure around him. Uh, and that is why it's the story in many ways as well of uh, those who chose to serve Donald Trump despite uh, their very clear view of what his liabilities were. And for many of them, uh, it was uh, a deal about policy. It was an effort, an, an, an opportunity to get what you wanted. And in fact, many people, both his political advisors and foreign leaders, interestingly, saw Donald Trump actually as highly manipulable. They saw Donald Trump as somebody uh, who could get them what they wanted. He's a very transactional uh, personality, and he has offered a very transactional politics to uh, those uh, in the Republican Party he sought to win over. Donald Trump uh, changed parties five times. He is not an ideological conservative. He's an ideological chameleon. Uh, you know, he was pro-choice before he was anti-abortion. Uh, you know, he thought Pat Buchanan, who in some ways is the ideological template for what we might call Trumpism, when Pat Buchanan actually ran for president, he thought he was crazy. Uh, and he thought that he was encouraging what Trump called the wacko vote. Well, now the wacko vote is the people that Donald Trump uh, has decided to make his own base in politics. So he is more than flexible. Uh, and if you look at, in particular, the enormous amount of support that um, evangelical uh, conservatives gave to Donald Trump, obviously not a man who in personality or inclination in any way resembled their belief set, uh, you know, many of them could look and say, well, we got a good end of the bargain. Uh, they transformed in a very short period of time the United States Supreme Court 
with three appointments. Uh, the result has been uh, the abolition uh, of uh, Roe versus Wade, a five-decade-old precedent. Uh, you know, there are many other examples where Trump essentially seeded policy. And that's another point I want to make because I think it comes up often uh, from a large group of Republicans, both in Washington and around the country. Uh, it's many of whom are what I would call anti anti-Trump. Uh, they are not necessarily pro-Donald Trump. You know, they say, oh, I wish he wouldn't tweet so much uh, back when he was still allowed to tweet. Uh, now, perhaps they say, well, maybe the party could move on. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, they have found a partisan identification that just overwhelms all else. There's a great Detail, though, when it comes to, say, the tax cuts, which uh, many conservatives think of as a, you know, one of the best things Donald Trump did. We actually went back and did some reporting on how did that package come together at the end of 2017. And Donald Trump's top tax policy official at the Treasury Department uh, said, on the record, in the book, he had nothing to do with it. Nothing. The only thing that Donald Trump cared about was the branding. He wanted to call it the Cut, Cut, Cut Act, <laughs> which his allies on Capitol Hill thought probably wasn't sufficient gravitas for a piece of legislation like that. I, I think that tells you a lot. Mm -hmm. Getting back to his historical significance, I think one thing that stands out that I don't think is going to change in 48 years was his being the first president who, to aggressively antagonize our allies. Uh, in the book, you talk, uh, or some of the people you interviewed called him a global disruptor, a man with l'état c'est moi, view of international diplomacy, a president with a foreign policy made in a free-for-all, a man elected based on a promise to blow up the existing order. Did he do any permanent damage to our relationship with our allies and particularly our alliances, NATO, uh, NAFTA, G7, WHO, what's, what's the impact internationally by the Trump foreign policy? Yeah, that's a good question. Very relevant, very important. Uh, you know, the foreign leaders are trying to figure him out like all of us were trying to figure him out, right? Who is this guy? So we had this scene in the book where Angela Merkel, the very, very stolid uh, chancellor of Germany, very experienced, very, uh, you know, uh, sober-minded, tries to figure out Trump. And how does she try to figure out Trump? She reads Playboy magazine. Because this is how you figure out Trump. He gave an interview in 1989. Turns out Angela Merkel is the one person who does read Playboy for the articles. And she read this interview that Trump gave in 1989 to, to Playboy in which he really explained kind of his worldview and, and discovered that it was true today, which is the idea that alliances, in effect, are bad or the allies are always trying to shaft us, or trying to screw us, that the you know, free trade is always a way of, you know, uh, undercutting Americans, his... You know, he, at the time, he was talking about Japan being the great threat economically, but today it was China. It, basically, he hasn't changed that much since then in his basic worldview. Susan's right, he has no real ideology, but he does have this sort of worldview. And the worldview, of course, is also based on this idea that everybody else is a chump, but I'm the only guy who can make a good deal, right? And so Angela Merkel reads Playboy magazine, and she has conversations with Justin Trudeau, and they try to figure him out, and Emmanuel Macron and Shinzo Abe from Japan. And many of them basically decide that flattery is the only thing that really works with it, which is not a bad theory of the case. But Shinzo Abe tried it. In fact, 
uh, Shinzo Abe uh, nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize, which really got him in good with Trump. Trump used to go around all the time. You know, my friend Shinzo Abe nominated me for the Nobel Peace Prize. What he didn't tell you, but we do in the book, is that he asked Shinzo Abe to nominate him for the Nobel Peace Prize. They had dinner, and he said, Shinzo, wouldn't you bother? Wouldn't you mind doing this for me? And of course, Abe, smart politician that he is, says yes, because he's trying to represent his country's interests. Now, Susan said, you know, some of these things, we're trying to distinguish between the things that are truly unusual versus the things that are just variations on a theme. It's not unusual for an American president to worry about our NATO allies not picking up their, their share of the burden. No, no question about it. You heard George W. Bush talk about that. You heard Barack Obama talk about that. What they didn't do was really trash our allies. They, they pushed them. They said, look, you need to spend more on your defense. You need to pick up more of the share of the burden. But he didn't go around calling them basically enemies of the, of the people, the equivalent of enemies of the people. I mean, he basically suggested that he cared more for Vladimir Putin than he did for Angela Merkel. And so you ask about lasting damage. I think there is lasting damage. Imagine, we write in the book several times, he came very close to getting the United States out of NATO altogether. And at one point, at a peak, Angela Merkel, he decides I'm gonna withdraw 10,000 troops from Germany tomorrow because I'm just mad at her for not coming to Washington for a meeting because of COVID. I mean, he was very mercurial in that sense. And the flatterers discovered that flattery only took them so far when it came to that. Imagine if he had pulled out of NATO and then Russia invaded Ukraine. Where would we be today if there was no NATO or if NATO had been broken apart without the United States as part of it, we would be in a very different place. Now, NATO has kind of come back together, thanks to Vladimir Putin as much as anybody and Biden to some extent, but I think Biden has done a good job of holding them together. But there's still this uncertainty out there mm-hmm. among our allies. Okay, guys, you told us, you know, you're back, right? That's the phrase Biden likes to use. And this, by the way, is a bipartisan thing. I think most other Republican presidents would be telling NATO the same thing as Biden has been telling them at this point. Jeb, a Jeb Bush president would be the same. Um, but you told us you're back, but how long, right? Are you really back? Is this just in the four-year interregnum between, you know, uh, presidencies that make, uh, you know, not really be supportive of NATO? So they're not certain about us right now. They don't know where we're going. And frankly, we don't know where we're going. So it's not entirely surprising. Well, we just talked about our allies, Susan, uh, and you all go into detail often because there's so much material here, how he repeatedly expressed his admiration for our enemies, uh, particularly, obviously, Putin, but also how much he admired the autocrats in North Korea, China, Egypt, Turkey, and the Philippines. And for him, quote, autocrats had the most allure. So what was behind this strange attitude toward our enemies? Well, you know, that is another area where I think history will record Donald Trump as uh, an outlier with no precedent in American history. Uh, You know, the country was founded literally uh, on the idea of uh, uh, rejecting tyranny and despotism. And uh, he is the only president, in in my knowledge, in, in all of our history, who has vocally and repeatedly expressed such admiration uh, for for despots and dictators, we have worked with dictators before, uh, and in fact, the history of American Cold War foreign policy is uh, littered with very unfortunate examples of uh, expedient arrangements between the United States and you know some of the world's worst dictatorships. You you just have to say that very clearly. Uh, what you didn't have was uh, uh, a lot of public speaking in which we were fawning over them for the repression of their own people. Uh, And actually, in that Playboy interview, 
There's another through line. Again, it's remarkable. That interview was given at the very end of the Cold War. And another thing that Trump said in there is he criticized Mikhail Gorbachev for being not strong enough. Uh, and he praised, he praised the leaders of China for the Tiananmen Square massacre. Can you imagine a president of the United States praising Tiananmen Square? And so it wasn't, it shouldn't have been a surprise. And yet, of course, it remains shocking, which is one of the kind of classic aspects that we've all experienced in some ways over the last four years, right? The sort of surprise, not surprised, but shocked nonetheless. Uh, this aspect in particular of the Trump presidency, uh, it would be one thing many presidents have sought to uh, negotiate with North Korea, right? Uh, that has been an attribute of our diplomacy uh, since Bill Clinton. No president, except for Donald Trump, could even begin, to, you could begin to conceive of Donald Trump only saying that he was having a love affair uh, with uh, the leader of North Korea's gulags. Uh, in fact, when Peter and I went to Mar-a-Lago and interviewed, we interviewed Donald Trump twice for this book. We spent about three and a half hours with him total. The second interview was held in his private office in Mar-a-Lago, the one that's now famous uh, from the pictures. Uh, we didn't see any documents Yeah, we on didn't see any documents. Uh, what we did see on the wall was something kind of remarkable. Uh, and what he chose to represent of his presidency in his private office was a bunch of pictures of himself, no surprise, uh, and two world leaders, the Queen of England and Kim Jong-un. Uh, and, you know, that is a remarkable thing, I think. Uh, with Vladimir Putin, it remains one of the enduring mysteries. Uh, why? You know, was it a particular affinity for Putin or part of his generic overall uh, admiration for strong men? Some of the people who worked with Trump on the National Security Council uh, that we spoke with believed that it was a more generalized uh, obsession with strong men, and that was the kind of power that he admired and what he himself wanted to be. Uh, but then there were others who believed, uh, you know, that Trump and Russia, despite all of the years of uh, investigation, actually was never really got to the bottom of just what was the nature of this connection. Both of Trump's sons said publicly before he ran for president that the financing of the Trump organization was very heavily dependent upon Russia. In fact, no government entity that we're aware of ever fully investigated or investigated at all uh, what kinds of financial dependency Trump might have on it. And there's one scene in our book that really leaps out at me and, and, and to me was part of why it was worthwhile to do the book. Remember July 2018, the infamous Helsinki meeting between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, and Trump gets up at the press conference with Putin looking on, and he basically takes Putin's word over that of America's intelligence agencies uh, about the 2016 election interference. Well, Dan Coats, who was then the director of national intelligence, hardly a raging liberal Democrat. Dan Coats was a longtime conservative Republican senator. Uh, he was the ambassador to Germany. He was then the director of national intelligence. He received this like a punch in the gut. And he told others uh, that that moment caused him to reevaluate uh, and to think that perhaps Putin really did have something on Donald Trump after all. And what I was really struck by was that even after everything, here's the guy who's access to the most sensitive intelligence and information in our system. And even Dan Coates is wondering, what does Vladimir Putin really have on Donald Trump? 
You know, talking about the connection between James Baker and, and this book, if you're ever around James Baker, within five minutes, he's going to go over the five P's. Proper <laughs> preparation prevents poor performance. Or maybe it's prior preparation. Right. You can hear it both ways. But anyway, before Trump goes to meet with the head of North Korea, he's really aggressive about saying, I, I don't believe in preparing for meetings. That's true. That's true. Shinzo Abe, his, you know, who was so successful at flattering Trump, is the exact opposite and was a practitioner. He would literally rehearse every conversation in advance with Trump, we learned in doing this book. Abe tells Trump in a phone call beforehand, well, we should really go over what you're going to say. And he actually gives Abe a lecture. He says, I I'm the best negotiator in the history of the world. <laughs> he says this to the prime minister of Japan. And he says, and my method is, I don't want to know anything. <laughs> I don't need any information. That may explain his hundreds of bankruptcies and thousands of lawsuits. <laughs> that he is the best negotiator in the history of the world. Uh, we, you talked earlier about kind of the constant turnover in the White House, the chaos. There were some people, though, who he could not fire. Uh, one of them was his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And in the book, you say he supplanted chiefs of staff, he overshadowed cabinet secretaries, he negotiated with congressional leaders and foreign potentates. How do you explain this vast amount of power and influence on somebody who had no official position, no prior experience? Yeah, now it's an interesting question. I mean, look, First of all, remember where Trump comes from, right? Never spent a day in public office of the military before becoming president. The only president we've had in American history who hadn't, right? Every other president had spent at least some day in public service in some way or another, and he hadn't. And so he comes into the presidency thinking of it like basically a large version of the Trump organization, which is a, and a lot of people here are in business, this is a family-owned organization, no shareholders, no corp, no board, Right, no accountability. It's all him. Whatever he wants to do, it's his business, and he perceives the presidency the same way. So it's a family organization. So of course you bring family, and you bring in your daughter, and you bring in your son-in-law, and he trusted Jared in a way he didn't trust others because he's family, and family is different than anybody else. Family are the only ones you can't fire. Everybody else is expendable. Four-star generals, fine. Steve Bannon, you're out. Uh, but family is not is not going to be fired. And he didn't trust uh, Jared Kushner with a lot of, of big items. In fact, he assigned Jared Kushner to do Middle East peace without telling Jared Kushner first. He told, <laughs> he told the New York Times that. He came to our headquarters and he gave a conversation after the election of 2016 and he was asked about it. He said, yeah, Jared's going to do Middle East peace. And Jared only found out when one of my colleagues called him up later and said, hey, we hear you're doing Middle East peace. It was the first he'd heard of it. So he, a lot of things like that happened. Jared survived in part, he's a, he's a clever guy, and in some ways, for a lot of people, he was seen as one of the few people who could actually get stuff done, who could convince his father-in-law to do something or not do something, as the case may be. Uh, but others saw him as arrogant and very presumptuous. They called him the Slim Reaper, because, you know, he's pretty slim. Uh, and because it felt to a lot of staffers that he was only out for, he and, and Ivanka were only out for themselves and would cut everybody else loose if... If, if it uh, served their interests. Yeah, all of those Middle East peace negotiations he's now using with his private equity to, you know. He made a lot of good contacts. Yeah. He made a lot of good contacts. Now, you know, look, he did some things that obviously, uh, you know, made a difference. Uh, he helped shepherd in the Abraham Accords, in which Israel has diplomatic relations now with some of its allies. That was something he worked on. He did not do Middle East peace. 
as it was originally set out to do, right? What Trump wanted to do was the ultimate deal, the deal of the century, which was between the Palestinians and the Israelis. We're no better off, in fact, probably worse off than we were before. But he opportunistically saw the moment when, when the Abraham Accords was possible and he, and he helped make that happen. He had a goal, he had, he had a strategy for dealing with his father-in-law, which was, you know, he decided ultimately not to be the guy who went in every day saying, don't do this, don't do that, because it was only gonna get his father-in-law mad at him, right? Everybody wanted him to, Jared, can you save the Paris Accord? Jared, can you make sure he doesn't get out of NAFTA? Jared, can you, can you stop this? Can you stop that? And he, and he picked his battles, right? Because he realized he couldn't do it every time and his father-in-law wouldn't listen to him a lot of the time. So he had a, he had a strategy. And part of the strategy was when he had bad news to deliver his father-in-law, he had a formula. It was a two-to-one formula. I gave him two-to-one good news to bad news anytime I have to deliver something he didn't want to hear. I I'd, I'd tell him, yay, yay, yay. And by the way, <laughs> mm-hmm. And he had another strategy, which was adding five points to any poll numbers that the president didn't like. <laughs> it's okay, they don't capture your people anyway, add five points to that. And he picked his battles, and, he, and, the, and the most significant one he decided not to, to fight was after the election. Mm-hmm. He knew, Ivanka knew, neither one of them believed that the election was stolen. They knew that was not true. They knew it. And they chose not to do anything about it. They chose not to fight against the Rudy Giuliani's and the Mike Lindell's and the Mike Flynn's. They basically absented themselves from that fight at a moment where maybe they could have made a difference. And so I think that's a really interesting moment. In fact, two days after the election, Jared wakes up and tells Ivanka, we're moving to Miami, right? They don't believe this stuff about how he's gonna stay in office, he's gonna overturn the election. They know it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. But the, the rest of the world thinks that that's true, or at least a lot of people that Trump told he thought that was true. Uh, and they bought a $32 million state in Miami uh, before Trump, long before Trump left office, because mm-hmm. they knew it was over. Yeah. But he wouldn't fight with Rudy. He, says, I, he told the president, he says, look, I'm for you, but if you're going to have Rudy in charge, I'm out of here. And he headed to the Middle East to start making some of those contacts they yeah. used later. Susan, let's talk about one of the real mysteries of the Trump presidency, and that's his, his marriage with Melania. Hmm. Uh, she was, I think, by questions. far the lowest profile first lady over the last century, if not longer. You say she was, quote, largely invisible. Her secret service code name was Rapunzel. <laughs> so what's your perception of the Trump marriage and of how she viewed her role as first lady? Yeah, this is this is a great question. She's the first foreign-born uh, first lady since Louisa Adams, right? This is a you know really unusual situation. Trump is uh, uh, one of only you know we don't have a lot of divorced presidents in American history either. Never mind thrice married. Uh, and in fact, one of the first things that Melania Trump did, according to our colleague uh, Mary Jordan from the Washington Post, who did a very interesting book about uh, Melania Trump. She used Trump's election as president in 2016 as an opportunity to renegotiate her prenuptial agreement. Uh, and in fact, when, remember when she stayed in New York and she didn't move to Washington right away? That's because she was negotiating uh, with her husband. Uh, and that tells you, I think, a lot. Uh, it was a transactional president and clearly had a transactional relationship. Uh, there was a misapprehension about Melania Trump at the beginning 
of the presidency, right? Remember when she was sort of a resistance hero, you know, free Melania, they had the signs in the Women's March and stuff like that. That, that was wrong. Uh, she was not a closet liberal. Uh, in fact, it's, the record is pretty clear that she subscribed, uh, you know, to some of her husband's views, uh, certainly had a scathing view of uh, the media, certainly believed that, that uh, they were being unfairly criticized. Um, even Melania, probably the most interesting new detail about her in our book uh, is comes during February 2020, when uh, even she was very alarmed at uh, Trump's initial refusal to take the COVID pandemic seriously. And uh, she goes to Chris Christie, uh, who was one of the Trump outside advisors that she knew for a long time, so she trusted him. Uh, and by the way, Melania Trump was part of this toxic feuding uh, and infighting, right? One of the things we learn in doing this book is that Trump was a divider uh, on the inside, too, not just a divider in terms of the American people. His family was divided. His advisors were divided. Uh, you all have heard the stories of the toxic infighting, uh, you know, to a level almost unprecedented in any White House, in any period. All White Houses have infighting. Uh, this was something to a totally different degree. Yeah. Melania was allied with Chris Christie, who was bitter enemies with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, uh, because amazingly enough, Chris Christie had actually sent Jared Kushner's father to jail. Uh, and I, I, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with it, but for those who aren't, can you imagine Jared Kushner's father was sent to jail by Chris Christie because he hired a prostitute uh, in a scam of his own brother-in-law, uh, which was then, uh, you know, the subject of a federal investigation. Obviously, uh, Jared has some challenges on both sides of his family uh, when it comes to dominant personality. <laughs> um, so Melania was allied with Chris Christie. She turns to him and she says, Chris, you know, I'm really worried here. And she tells him that on uh, the flight, they were was a trip to India, remember, that Trump took right before everything shut down for COVID, uh, that she said, Donald, you're blowing this. You're blowing this. You're not taking it seriously enough. And to me, that's a very striking thing because she did not really get involved in policy. She did not really get involved in politics. And just on a visceral level, it was clear, you know, to anybody with the information, uh, you know, that we were dealing with a once-in-a-century threat. Now, one of the most important events during the Trump presidency was the Mueller investigation. And full investigation, former head of the FBI, the Russian interference in the 2016 election. And ultimately, the Mueller report concluded that there was not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt which is the criminal standard burden of proof to warrant going forward, to which Trump said, oh, well, then I'm innocent. But my question is, if we use the civil case burden of proof, preponderance of the evidence, mm -hmm. do you think the Mueller report would have had a different conclusion about the evidence gathered regarding the Russian influence on the 2016 election? Yeah, it's a good question. The Mueller report is, is, is interesting in some ways. It's, it's, um, it's, it was framed as exoneration by the president, understandably, I suppose. He tried to, to tell everybody that, that that proved the whole thing was a hoax. That's not what the report says. What the report says is there was an extraordinary amount of contact between the Russians and the Trump campaign. 
It says that the Russians sought to help Trump win. It says that Trump knew the Russians wanted him to win, and, and he, he and his people were perfectly happy to accept their help. What it also says is that we don't find a criminal conspiracy there, per se, provable, beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm not sure necessarily a criminal conspiracy provable by a preponderance of the evidence in a civil standard either. But it does say that there's something there. You know, there was an attempted collusion, which we all know about, which is this meeting at Trump Tower where the Russians come and visit on the promise of dirt, their, their phrase, uh, on behalf of the Russian government, again, their phrase in the emails. And the only difference was they just didn't get anything out of it, right? There was an attempted collusion, even if it wasn't consummated, let's say. So there was a willingness to collude, if you will. That may not be a crime, uh, but it's certainly interesting. And it's certainly important, I think, for people to know. And it's certainly sort of an unexplained element to Susan's point about his, his admiration for Vladimir Putin. What's really going on there? I don't think we've ever really answered that question. The other part of the Mueller report, though, is interesting. He basically does say he committed a crime in the second part of the report. This obstruction of justice part... He outlines 10 instances where he says they could be considered uh, acts of obstruction. And in effect, what Mueller is saying is I'm not charging with that because he's president of the United States and the Department of Justice policy is we can't charge a sitting president with a crime. And therefore, I can't even say that I think he committed a crime because he can't defend himself in court, so I'm trying to be fair here by not saying it. But basically, he's saying it without saying it. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of lawyers, I'm not one, a lot of lawyers would look at the evidence that's in the report and say it's pretty clear obstruction of justice. I mean, there's an argument there that his defenders would say, look, a president is entitled to do, you know, have control over the executive branch to, to, and, and therefore it can't be obstruction. But a lot, of, a lot of lawyers would say there was evidence of criminality in that report that simply wasn't charged. Um, Again, Trump has successfully reduced all of this to, I'm, I'm exonerated, the whole thing was a hoax, um, without ever actually answering the questions about, mm -hmm. you know, we really uh, answer. Now, one of the themes in your book is, is this momentum that builds over the four years. He, he uh, fires his first team of advisors, or they quit, and, and then surrounds himself with yes, man. That emboldens him. He feels like he's exonerated in the Mueller report, even though he isn't. That emboldens him. He has the first impeachment trial because it takes two-thirds for somebody to be impeached. He, he, quote, wins that trial. That emboldens him. Uh, and and emboldened, a different word that former Secretary of Defense Esper used, it made him more unleashed. Uh, so talk about how this process of perceived victories moved us toward the 2020 election and the aftermath. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think you're right. You know, the Donald Trump of 2020 was a different character uh, in terms of what he saw as his powers uh, than the Donald Trump of 2017. And um, the constraints... Uh, that many believed existed in our system on a president, he blew past them one by one. You know, there are different metaphors, you know, going through the guardrails. Uh, one of the things that the Trump presidency has shown us pretty clearly, right, is that impeachment is functionally uh, no longer a constraint on American president at a time of such uh, partisan division. Uh, the founders envisioned impeachment uh, because they saw Congress as functioning in a, a different way than it does right now. In the end, uh, Richard Nixon faced the threat not only of impeachment but conviction by the Senate because his own party chose, in effect, their institutional responsibilities. It was Republicans who drove Richard Nixon from office, Where and it was Republicans are. who kept Donald Trump in office, right? That's the difference between when I was a little kid and now, uh, that 
the party chose one course and it chose a different course now. And interestingly, uh, Trump also, a man who, you know, personality-wise is driven by grievance and um, uh, the need, the compulsion almost to be in a fight. Uh, in fact, he gave an interview at the very beginning of his presidency. He told the, the folks from Time Magazine who came to see him, uh, he said, here's the secret to how I, how I work. Uh, you have to be combative, always be combative. If there wasn't an enemy, he was going to find one and make one. Uh, these investigations, these serial investigations, provided the narrative of grievance uh, and the enemies that Donald Trump was seeking and would have created had these investigations not occurred. And, you know, the 2020, one of the reasons why Melania Trump says you're blowing this, Donald, is because the first part of 2020 was consumed by the impeachment trial, and February was all about Donald Trump's vengeance. He was obsessed with purging his enemies, as he saw it, from the government. Remember that uh, the evidence uh, for his Ukraine impeachment came from people who were working inside the U.S. government for Donald Trump. He was focused on purging his enemies and wreaking vengeance. He was, he was focused on making sure that Republicans who tried to stand up against him uh, were essentially thrown out of the party. And that's what he was focused on in February of 2020 instead of the pandemic. And of course, he was also focused on his own reelection. The personal uh, personalization of the American government and its institutions was a theme that runs through all of this. He wanted the military as his Praetorian Guard. Uh, he was so personally piqued uh, at Angela Merkel, Peter mentioned this, because uh, she didn't want to come to Washington, D.C. in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, she said, well, Donald, we have uh, a lockdown, you know, in Germany. I can't violate uh, my own country's laws that I'm imposing on everyone else. He, he saw the government as his personal instrument. Imagine ordering 10,000 of the 30,000 U.S. troops that were still remaining in Germany out of the country, a written order, uh, because he was mad at Angela Merkel. That included ordering moving the, the moving of the U.S. European command for all of our you know, troops in Europe, uh, our NATO command out of Germany and to Brussels. That was one of the first things that Joe Biden had to undo that order because it would have been so costly and disruptive uh, to our national security. And so, you know, I think that he moves on, he moves on. I'll leave you with this very chilling uh, metaphor that we heard from a senior national security official who spent a lot of time directly in the Oval Office with Trump, uh, who said, to your point about, you know, the appetite grows while eating, she said that Trump reminded them of the velociraptors in the first Jurassic Park movie. Do you remember when the children run into the kitchen to hide from the dinosaurs and they think they're safe and then click the door opens. The velociraptors learn to open the door. And the point of this official was that Trump was the velociraptor who over time had learned to open the door. Uh, and I think that is why uh, a second Donald Trump term would be very, very different from the first one. Mm -hmm. I want to close by talking about the election and in January 6th. Uh, 
After he lost the election in November, you used a phrase or somebody you interviewed said, we were just trying to land the plane. We're just trying to get to January 20th, the orderly transition of power. Who can land the plane? Uh, during that time, he fired his secretary of defense. He started signing orders, pulling American troops from places around the world without the knowledge of his national security advisor, secretary of defense, uh, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, secret orders approved and known about by no one. Mark Milley, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a student of history, believed, as you said, Peter, he had a Reichstag moment and started acting like Hitler. And this really is the juiciest part of the book that I hope anybody who says, well, I like his policy, but I'm not sure about a person. Once you hear about this side of his person, how close he, he uh, got to engineering a coup to invoke martial law and attempt to take over the federal government on the order of seven days in May. And once you know those facts, if you're still walking around talking about how much you like Trump, then you got issues. But, but, but talk about how close did we come? How close did we come to that, to a coup? Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to, to think about this. You're right. Look, there was no contest in this election. There was no question about this election. It was a clear result. Florida in 2000, that was close. Gore and Bush both had perfectly legitimate reasons to say, you know, I won and, and here's why and to fight it out and they, they fought it out. And both of them, by the way, then accepted the result, right? Al Gore says after the Supreme Court rules, I don't agree with this ruling, but George W. Bush is now my president. And I congratulate him on the victory. He believed in the system. Donald Trump was told by his people, no, you lost. His own people told him this. His own campaign lawyers, his campaign strategists, they said, no, you lost. Sorry, wish it hadn't happened. We didn't like this rule or that rule that they changed the, in, the mail and whatever, but there's no evidence of fraud that would overcome an election. His own attorney general told him that. Bill Barr, no shrinking violet, no, no liberal simp, you know, told him it's all BS. And then he went out and told the country anyway, that the election had been stolen, knowingly, that, that knowing that was not the case, having been informed that was not the case. And you're right, there's this meeting in the Oval Office, starts in the Oval Office one night. Uh, December 18th. December 18th, starts in the Oval Office, later is moved to the residence over five hours, five hours, he has Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell and Patrick... Uh, uh, O'Connell. No, Patrick Boyle. The Overstock.com guy. Um, and people kind of come in and out. The White House lawyers suddenly realize what's going on. They're rushing to the Oval Office. And the discussion is, uh, they're presenting him with an order to seize the voting machines. And, and Mike Flynn has been talking about using martial law. Let's use the military to rerun the elections in the states we lost, by the way. Not across the country. Just the states he lost. The six states that they thought that he should have won. We'll rerun it until we get the result we want in effect. And Trump entertains this until his lawyers like Pat Cipollone and Eric Hirschman, these guys come in and say, what are you talking about? This is nuts. This is crazy. This is illegal. There's nothing that you can do here. And it shouldn't be done. And this meeting goes all the way into the residence. And he, all the way till midnight, he's serving uh, little, little uh, postiggers or something like that at some point. And even Trump at one point says, I don't think there's ever been a meeting anything like this in the White House in the history of the country. <laughs> and that part's true. <laughs> there hadn't been. 
It came that close. And when he left, when the people left just after midnight, about an hour later, he tweets this famous tweet out now. It says, big rally on January 6th. Come be wild. It will be wild. Which was then taken by the white supremacists and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all these people as an as a invitation to Washington to do what ultimately happened on January 6th. We have never seen anything like that. He didn't just, and it wasn't just that I'm complaining about an election I lost. First of all, he told us, as Susan likes to say, he told us in May that if he didn't win the election, he would tell us it was rigged. If I don't win, it means it's rigged, automatically. Which, by the way, is also his history throughout his career. Anytime he lost anything, he would say it was rigged. When he lost an Emmy for The Apprentice, he said it was rigged. Well, it's always rigged. You say in the book that every time he plays golf... He wins. He wins. <laughs> Even though he doesn't Even win. if he loses. But he tells people he won. He tells you he wins. Well, and this is where having, being surrounded, this is why the book is not just the story of Trump. Being surrounded by people like Jared Kushner, who tell you that, you know, you're five points better in your poll than you actually are. Who say for every little bit of bad news, you know, like a toddler, I got to feed it to you with like, you know, uh, a double helping of sweetness. Right. Uh, this is what happens to tyrants. They become more and more isolated uh, in your own business. How long would you be able to survive uh, if you were surrounded only by people who told you what you wanted to hear? Your business probably wouldn't be very successful, would it? Uh, Donald Trump, uh, increasingly over time, as he purged those who told him things he didn't want to hear, People like John Kelly or uh, uh, even John Bolton, Bill Barr, you know, people who told him what he didn't want to hear were purged over time. And you ended up uh, with the chief of staff. Uh, his fourth chief of staff was Mark Meadows, a uh, very, very different character than John Kelly, his second chief of staff. Uh, you know, there are no heroes. Let's be clear. There are no heroes in the Trump White House. And by the way, that's a direct quote that was told to us by someone who worked in the Trump White House. So, I, you know, I think that's important to say, right? This, these are complicated people, who, many of whom were compromised uh, in many ways by their service in the Trump White House. But I think uh, the, the record is very clear that if John Kelly had been the White House chief of staff, he might not have stopped Donald Trump from attacking the election, but he certainly would have thrown himself in the door of the Oval Office uh, to stop Donald Trump from spending five hours contemplating martial law, right? Whereas Mark Meadows uh, was what one source who interacted with him in this time called the matador. He was just waving them all in, waving them all in. Uh, and it, the enablers who became the facilitators are, are an important reason why we're even here today having this conversation. It really invites you to contemplate all the, the different circles of opportunists and grifters and ambitious types who gravitate around a figure like Donald Trump. Uh, because, of course, without them, uh, none of this would have been possible. Oh, you know, there is... Yeah, I'll leave you with one last point. But to your question about the institutions, people often say, oh, the institutions held, right? Well, yes, yes, but, right? It was what Mark Milley called a near-run thing, close-run thing, quoting Wellington from uh, Waterloo. It was a close-run thing. The institutions held because a handful of individual people decided they're not going to go along with it. Almost always, by the way, Republicans. 
the Republican governor of Georgia, the Republican secretary of state of Georgia, the Republican governor of Arizona. The, I, I interviewed a Republican county clerk in the Midwest who was under so much pressure to change the vote in her county. She says, I can't do that. This is not honest. It's not true. The Republican attorney general, Bill Barr, the Republican vice president of the United States who said, I'm not going to try to say I can claim, I can disallow votes. These are Republicans who all said no. But had there been somebody else in those positions who was more compliant, more deferential, we could have been in a very different place. Yeah, I mean, my great hero, Abraham Lincoln, team of rivals, and I know you picked the title, but the title of this book could have been Team of Yes, yes Men. <laughs> uh, any questions from the audience? Yes, David. Would you stand up, please, so everybody can hear you? Well, I think it's a great point because I think, look, Trump had always been successful at defining reality as he chose to define it, right? And he finally encountered a challenge that he couldn't tweet away, he couldn't bully away, he couldn't insult away, he couldn't intimidate away. And it just, you know, a virus isn't going to listen to him. It doesn't care if he tweets. It doesn't care if he uses names or, or, or calls them, you know, enemy of the people or whatever. And he didn't have, he wasn't, it wasn't in his wheelhouse to deal with that kind of a threat. So he has to personalize it and politicize it and make it about division, right? Well, the blue states are doing this and the red states are doing that, and I'm going to divide my own scientists. I bring in scientists because I don't like the ones who I have, and I pressure the scientists to approve hydroxychloroquine, which is not you know, a useful uh, drug in this instance. And he, we have instances in there where he's shouting at Fauci and, and Stephen Hahn, who was a Texan, and he was from MD Anderson in Houston, who was his FDA chief. It, he was never happy, never comfortable unless he was fighting with somebody. So rather than bring the country together, which is what you would hope you would do in a crisis like George W. Bush did after 9-11, like Barack Obama did after the financial crisis, he chose, that he, his instinct is to fight. As Susan said, he tells everybody, my job is to be combative. So instead of being a, a common threat to all of us, you know, things like mask wearing and vaccines become politicized. Instead of telling, we, I'll stop it. We went and interviewed Susan said twice, and we asked him at the first interview after leaving office about the vaccine. So are you going to do a public service announcement on the vaccine? This is your vaccine. It should be your proudest accomplishment. And it's your people who are nervous about it, skeptical about it. They would trust you if you told them it was okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. In fact, the Biden administration asked me to do it. Oh, okay. And we come back seven months later for the second interview, no PSA. Well, why didn't you do that PSA you told us you were going to do? He says, well, I never, what are you talking about? I never say anything about that. Where did you hear that from? Well, we heard it from you. <laughs> you are our source. You are our hidden source. But he, just, he either is lying the first time or lying the second time. I don't know which. But actually, I think that it, that tells you something about his date. He got ca ca caught up in the politics of the vaccine rather than promoting it. George W. Bush, Barack Obama, uh, Bill Clinton, all the former presidents took the vaccine in public with cameras to encourage people, as presidents do, in instances like that. Right. And, and Donald Trump was afraid of his own base because of the politics of that moment. Yes. Yeah.
You know, he is is a fascinating character. Uh, you know, he was essentially four years uh, of Sphinx, right? And uh, much effort was expended uh, in Washington trying to uh, find, you know, even a hint of, you know, what everyone believed he must actually think about Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, someone described his, uh, his devotional gaze, uh, you know, worshipful gaze at Donald Trump. Uh, he never broke, even in private, we did not turn up any instances uh, where he broke from that discipline. Of course, as a person, he was very different. Uh, he treated his staff very differently than Donald Trump treated his staff. Uh, he was respectful uh, of others. He was uh, what you might call in, in sort of the normal spectrum of an American politician, regardless is- of ideology. Uh, and yet, uh, again and again and again, no matter how flagrant Trump's uh, violation of the norms <laughs> that Pence presumably believed in, he never challenged him, even in private. Uh, you know, he wanted to be in the room with Trump. Uh, you know, I think there was a certain amount of eye rolling that went on among Trump's advisors. In fact, there's a hilarious uh, detail in the book where uh, Pence knew he needed to have access to Trump and he would spend so much time in the Oval Office that Trump's advisors perfected a way uh, to get him out of there. And if it was too much, uh, one of them would come in and they would say, uh, you know, Mr. Vice President, um, uh, the second lady, Mrs. Pence called and she says it's time to come home for dinner. <laughs> and they would get him out of the Oval Office. Uh, but Trump, I think, misread Pence for that reason. Uh, because again and again and again, Pence would roll over even his own principles uh, uh, in order not to be caught out objecting to Trump. And Trump was told by Pence and his advisors again and again and again in this crucial period after the election when he realizes that all of his other efforts to overturn the election haven't panned out, right? You know, there's 60 lawsuits, all of them thrown out. Uh, He tries to take over the Justice Department after Bill Barr. You know, that doesn't work because the entire leadership of the Justice Department stands against him. So basically, Pence is his last shot. January 6th and this sort of crazy theory of the case that even, by the way, the constitutional lawyer, John Eastman, brought in, even he said, well, that's probably not going to work. Uh, and it, it doesn't make any sense, right? Obviously, our tradition uh, does not include a theory where the vice president can single-handedly overturn the results of the election. Uh, and Trump was told this again and again by Pence and his advisors, and yet he didn't process it. Was that because Pence had always rolled over up until that point uh, we don't know. Is it because Pence really wasn't forceful enough in saying to Trump, no, you know, that's an interesting theory, it seems to me. Uh, but in the end, uh, we know what happened. There was finally a red line that Pence uh, wouldn't cross. Every year, the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library gives a profile and courage award. <laughs> Do you think Pence deserves it? Well, it's not, we don't give awards. We're journalists. It's not our job to give awards. <laughs> no. Um, if you I mean, were on the board of the Kennedy Center, you had a vote. <laughs> I'm not on the board, and I wouldn't have a vote. Look, you know, the thing is, what's interesting about Pence is, you know, he does stand up to Trump in this moment. He has, Susan said he reaches a fork in the road. He can't finagle. He can't get around. He can't find a way to smooth it over. Uh, but he's tried ever since to, to find some awkward, uncomfortable balance between standing up for the position he took without directly challenging Trump too frontally. So from time to time, he'll say, you know, Trump was wrong. We can't 
have a vice president change the election, but he's not Liz Cheney. He has not come out and said that what the president did was wrong. And, and by the way, that is one of the interesting and sort of enduring mysteries for many of the characters that you'll read about in the book. Uh, you know, why have they remained so afraid to own up to their own actions uh, or to publicly uh, speak out? It, it's really, it speaks to their perception of the continuing power that Donald Trump has over the party, uh, over them personally. Many of them have created business, entire business models around wielding their access to Trump. Ryan Priebus, first chief of staff, great example, humiliated, literally humiliated, uh, dumped by tweet on the tarmac in the rain, left behind by the presidential motorcade. The guy was, you know, basically emasculated as much as anyone could possibly be. Have you seen a lot of Reince Priebus on television, uh, you know, saying what he really thought about Donald Trump? No, because he then wielded his uh, access and power. The swamp, uh, in fact, was, you know, the, the Trump advisors who cycled in and out of the White House. And there are so many examples of that. People who, uh, you know, certainly provided cooperation to many journalists uh, in writing the history of what happened in the Trump White House, but are afraid to this day to speak out and tell the public uh, what they experienced. Mm -hmm. I want to respect everybody's schedule. It's nine o'clock. Uh, I hope you'll read this book. I've never read a book that had such electricity <laughs> where the words were just exploding off the page with information that blew my mind. So give it a shot. If you love it, tell your friends about it. This is a book that everybody needs to read. Thank you so much, Peter. After reading Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's stunning account of Donald Trump's presidency, it came about after the authors interviewed 300 people, almost all of whom are Republicans who worked in the Trump administration. It dramatically changed my understanding of how truly dangerous Trump was in terms of his approach to, quote, leadership, close quote, being in total conflict with our Constitution and laws, and also the fact that for the most part, with a few notable exceptions, he surrounded himself with yes people. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, Remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.